Welcome to another episode of Bereans Podcast. Each week we share a message from the Bible and examine it to understand and learn to apply it to our lives. The hope is that through the wisdom of the scriptures, we will all be encouraged to make real life change and that the power of the gospel will transform our lives. Thanks for listening and enjoy this episode of the Berean Podcast that starts right now. Courage is armor a blind man wears. That calloused scar of outlived despairs. Courage is fear said its prayers. Well, good morning, church family. Morning. I want to say welcome to those of you who are here in the building, as I just did, and also to those of you who are joining us online. Uh, you know, sometimes a sermon passage that we're drawing from is so rich, so vibrant, that it really needs no introduction. The introduction is usually the last thing in the sermon that I, I, I write or that I craft. And today we're talking out of the series on Elijah on this iconic and memorable encounter of Elijah with the prophets of Baal. And if you've grown up around Sunday school or if you have one of those action Bibles as a kid, if you've been around churches for any amount of time, more than likely, when it comes to Elijah, this is the story that your mind goes to. This is one of the most significant encounters in Elijah's life. But more than a fun, interesting, or fascinating story, this passage offers us hope. Because at the end of this encounter, what we see is that Elijah witnesses in Israel some form of revival. I mean, Elijah lived and ministered in a dark and broken season of Israel's history. Idolatry was common and was encouraged. Sexual perversion was spread throughout the region. There was even the practice of infanticide where they would offer their children or their babies as a sacrifice to their false gods. They had been influenced by the nations around them and they had forgotten that they were God's people called to be a unique people who obeyed him and honored him. But what Elijah had is what we need. Elijah had courage. And what Elijah saw is what we long to see. Revival. Hearts and lives transformed by Jesus, the risen Christ. This is what we long for and this is what we desire. And what I hope today we will accomplish in our time here in God's word is that you will learn not just from this story, but see how this story is your story as well. Why? Because it's the story of Jesus. How this points us and our hearts 
to the good news revealed in the face of Christ. Now, this is all taken from 1 Kings chapter 18. And I'm not going to get you to stand today as I read, because I'm going to read a long section, but we're going to do it in different chunks. And the reason that we often stand during the first part of the sermon when we're addressing and reading through the main text is because it's it's a symbolic gesture of our honoring and our respect for God and his word. And I think that that's important, and long may that continue. But even here today, where we're not standing, perhaps the best way for you to honor God's word is to obey it, to do what it says. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, says Jesus, and you don't even do the things that I command you. The greatest way to show honor and respect to God and his word is to put it into practice. Now, this is all from 1 Kings 18, but maybe you're new here and you're just kind of jumping in midway through this series. Let me give you a little bit of background on Elijah. Elijah ministered in about 860 BC, and he comes into a world that is broken. In the nation of Israel, the nation has been ripped apart. It is divided. It is filled with idolatry. It is filled with sexual sin. It is filled with brokenness. And he comes, Elijah comes, and rebukes the king of Israel named Ahab. Ahab was a wicked guy. Ahab married a woman named Jezebel. She was wicked as well. They were a real power couple in the wrong sense of the word. And they sought to lead God's people astray to worship a false god named Baal. Because in their mind, in that day and age, Baal was the god of fertility, the god of the storm. So you can see how an agriculturally dependent uh, community would have this soft spot for a god who could deliver in those ways. So Elijah bursts onto the scene and he says to King Ahab, there's going to be no rain or dew until I say so. He is whisked away, then he's eventually taken up to a region called Sidon, which is the heart of Baal worship in the land of those days. And even there, God is teaching Elijah. He is preparing Elijah. He is working his power out through Elijah so that Elijah will grow in his trust and in his dependence. But after a season of preparation comes the season of the battle. And Elijah returns back and he sees Ahab coming towards him and Ahab sees him and Ahab cries out, is it you, you troubler of Israel? The one who had been bringing all the headache, all the problems, this drought and the resulting famine, is that you, troubler of Israel? And it's fascinating because even here, it's like Ahab doesn't get it. Ahab's not the troubler of Israel. God is. God is the one working judgment. God is the one bringing about his ends. God is the one trying to get Israel's attention. But Ahab can't see it. All he sees is a political opponent who stands in the way. So he looks at Elijah and says, is that you, you troubler of Israel? So Elijah has had enough, and he comes up with a plan. It's going to be a showdown. Let me read for you 1 Kings chapter 18. I'm going to start in verse 19, and then I believe that verse 20 and on is going to be up on the screen. 
This is God's word for us today. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Then Elijah said this, Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Go gather all the false prophets of Baal. Gather them up on the Mount Carmel. So Ahab sent to all Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people saying, how long will you go limping, vacillating, unsure between these two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if it is Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left, a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Here's the competition. Here's the plan that Elijah comes up with. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And you will call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, well, he is God. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. Let me stop right there. Think about this scene. Elijah is creating this encounter. He says, we're going to go on top of Mount Carmel. I want all the people there to witness this and to see this. Mount Carmel was a significant spot in the history of Israel. It was an important theological place for the nation. So Elijah says, gather all the people together, and we're going to get two bulls. The prophets of Baal, you know what? They can go first. We'll let them go first. They pick a bull. They put it on their altar. They can call out to their God, and we'll see what happens. Then Elijah says, basically, I'll do the same. And the God who answers by fire, well, that's the God that we should be serving. So Elijah lets them have first crack at it. They took the bull and they prepared it, it says. And they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. There are hours deep into it at this point, saying, Oh, Baal! Answer us. And they limped around the altar that they had made. Elijah has had enough. He comes to the people and he says, why are you going back and forth? Whoever is God, just serve them. Serve him. If Baal is God, then go ahead and serve him. But if the one true God of Israel is God, then let's serve him. How long, he says, will you differ, limp back and forth between these two decisions? You know, these two options. In many ways, this challenge is the same for us today. Even for those of us who have decided to follow Jesus, who have had our eyes open to his his grace and his mercy displayed at the cross, and we would say, I'm on team Jesus. I follow him. 
man, we can still have hearts that are divided. The reality is that very few of us, very few of you, I'm sure, at home have a little secret compartment in the back of your closet where nobody knows. And if you open that door, you can go in back and there's a little Baal shrine set up there. And you do your time at church and then you sneak home and you say to, you know, you say to your spouse, you say to your roommates, I just got to go uh, get something upstairs. I'll be a few minutes. And then you crawl into your little nook and you get down and you offer your prayers to Baal. I would bet that that's not very likely. Nevertheless, this issue of the divided heart calls for a decision. You may not be tempted to bow down to Baal or to follow another false god, but man, the false gods of control, materialism, your sexual sin, Hear the word of Elijah and hear my word to you. How long? Hmm? How long are you going to go back and forth? How long are you going to try to straddle the fence? Serve God and God alone. Because all these other false gods, they will promise you everything, but they will deliver nothing. They promise you life and all they bring is death. They promise you light and all they bring is darkness. There is one God. Serve him. He's the one who brings life. He's the one who brings light. How long are you going to go? How long are you going to have a foot in the world and a foot in church? How long are you going to have those secret sins and you're going to try to follow Jesus? How long? Choose today. Make a decision today, like Elijah calls for to the people. So the prophets are there. They, ha they have gone first. They have their bull. The bull has been slaughtered. It's on the altar, and they start to pray him. They have a little um, blasphemous, heretical church service up there because they go. They start in the morning, and they're going until noon. But then the writer says this, there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah, Elijah had just gotten out of some sensitivity training from work. <laughs> so he says here, mocked them saying, cry louder. For he is a God after all. Either he is musing, meaning maybe he's deep in thought. Maybe your God is distracted. Could God make a rock so big that even he himself could not lift it? You just get lost in thought. Maybe God was thinking, no. The answer to that is not that complicated. God doesn't do stupid things. Then Elijah says this. Maybe he is relieving himself. Maybe Baal is on the can. Have you ever had somebody knock on the door or ring your doorbell when you're sitting on the toilet? Time never goes so slow as you're trying to decide what your options are, right? You need to get one of those ring apps kind of doorbells, right? Oh, maybe Baal's on the maybe Baal is on the toilet and he's indisposed. He's he's gonna come, but he's just a little bit busy. He had something last night that didn't agree with him. Give him time. Or maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he just read Eat, Pray, Love, and he's on some soul quest to find himself or something. Maybe he'll be back soon, but he, he's away right now. Or perhaps he is asleep. 
man, it's tired being Baal. And sometimes he needs a little self-care. So maybe he's sleeping. Maybe you should just shout and scream a bit louder. So they do just that. Elijah mocks them. And then it says, they cried aloud even more. And they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And at midday, they raved on until that time of offering of the oblation. And after all this fury, after all this energy, after all this frantic activity, listen to these words. There was no voice. No one answered. And no one paid attention. You see, these, this passage, this little section, shows us two problems with all false gods. The first is that they have no power. They can't help you. There is no one there to speak, no one to answer, and no one to pay attention. Your new age crystals can't hear you. They cannot answer you. Your vague coexist spirituality cannot hear the words that you pray. Your made-up opinions about God cannot answer you. It's like when people say, well, that's an interesting perspective, Devin, but to me, God is like, and I always want to pause them right there and say, well, interesting you should say that because to me, to me, your bank account is mine. <laughs> and to me, that new boat that you just purchased that you've been saving up for, to me, that's mine. And to me, that new phone that you just got with like a 315 megapixel camera, that's mine. You would say, Devin, your claim doesn't correspond to reality. It means nothing to me. And it's the same when it comes to faith. For you to simply say, well, to me, God is like, that doesn't matter. That is a God of your imagination. That God cannot hear you. That God cannot speak. He is not real. The false God of modern culture who just loves, just loves everyone and would never dare talk about sin. That God cannot hear you, cannot speak, and will not answer. Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad cannot hear you, cannot speak, and will not answer. There is one God who speaks. There is one God who hears. There is one God that is there. You see, your false gods have no power to save. But here's the second problem of false gods. Not only do they lack the power to save, but all they do is make you work. I mean, think about this passage. These prophets of Baal, they were sincere. They had a form of worship, some kind of flow. They had all these different elements and they were so committed. They were so invested. 
that they end up getting out swords and lances and cutting themselves so that their blood would pour out. All of this is just works. Works religion, the oldest human invention. But Christianity is unique. Because Christianity teaches that you are not saved by your religious effort. That you are not saved by being a good little boy or a good little girl, by coming to church, by giving something in the offering baskets, or doing whatever religious activities you can think of. That you are not saved. You are not saved by being so sincere that you are willing to cut yourself and shed your blood. This is what the false God was claiming. But we serve a God who is willing to bleed himself for you. That's the difference. It's not about works. It's about the grace of God given to us in Christ. These false gods, they have no power. All they do is demand that you work for them. But in Christianity, the true God, the one God, came down to live among us to give his life and to shed his blood so that you could be saved, not based, not based off of your works, but based off of his work. This is the problem with false religion. This is the problem with man-made religions. It's always powerless, and it's always based on your works. And this is why the gospel is so freeing. that the all-powerful God of all creation shed his blood for you. And we read a story like this, and we think, what a guy, right? What an incredible person. I mean, freedom fighter, he, he, he was taking a stand, God was using him, he was working miracles. What an amazing character. What would it be like to be so fearless and so bold as this? Sometimes we read the Bible, we read especially the narrative sections with a bit of rose-tinted glasses. And you read these Old Testament stories and you just think of these people as almost otherworldly, immune from fear, from doubt, from uncertainty. Elijah was just like you. How do I know that? Well, because the Bible tells us that. In James chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, James, Jesus' like half-brother, is writing, and he's talking about prayer, and he puts this in specifically. He says this, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He wasn't some superstar. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain. And the earth bore its fruit. Elijah was just like you. Elijah needed courage. He didn't simply have it. You don't need courage when you're not afraid of something. It doesn't require much courage for me to brush my teeth in the morning. It doesn't require much courage 
for me to drive to the church building in the morning? What requires courage? Whatever it is that you're scared to do. He was a man just like us who wrestled uncertainty. We're reading here in these short chapters all the highlights of an entire lifetime. Elijah was just like you and just like me. And somehow God used him to bring about transformation in this society. How? Well, first of all, let me submit this to you. Courage requires prayer. Courage requires prayer. Look at down at the text here if you can. So then Elijah's turn comes up, and he's going to pray through this process. Listen to Elijah's opportunity. So after the prophets of Baal have struck out, they've been going for hours. They don't have much blood left. They're getting tired out. Then Elijah said to all the people, this is verse 30, come near to me. And all the people came near him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And then he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said this, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And then he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran all around the altar and filled the trench also with water. So Elijah here has set up this situation in which the prophets of Baal have had their opportunity. Now it's his. But he doesn't want anyone thinking that this was some kind of unique kind of sleight of hand, some kind of lucky opportunity, maybe lightning strikes or something. So he wants to make it abundantly clear that this is God's doing, that God is the one acting, that God is the one calling his people's hearts back to him. So he says, we're going to build the altar and then we're going to soak it in water. Not just once, not just twice, but three times until the water is dripping out. And here he comes. It's, it's come time. And at that time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, and he prays. He prays this. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all of these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that your people may know that you, O Lord, are God. And that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And then all the people saw it and they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Elijah sets the scene. 
He had been journeying with God for a season here. God had been preparing, in him, preparing him, working in him. And when it comes down to that final pinnacle moment, what does he do? He prays. Right there in that moment, he prays. If we're going to see revival, of see hearts turn back, it requires prayer. Let me ask you a question. How often do you worry and fret and doom scroll, I mean, sorry, research all the things that are going wrong in our society today? And then compare that to how often you pray. I'm not talking about a a throwaway statement here. Like, oh, you know, you should pray about it. Yes, I know I should. I pray about everything. Thank you. I'm talking about deep wrestling and calling out to God. Here, Elijah invokes his covenant name, traces all the way back through the history here of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And he prays to his father in heaven. He prays to God in heaven. And maybe that's what you need in this season, to pray, seriously. Because maybe you have a situation at work where you're not sure if you can stick it out any longer. The direction the company's been taking, some of the training you have to sit through, it's just becoming a bit much for you and you're not sure. Or maybe for you, it's a, it's a relationship. A son, a daughter, a niece, a nephew a brother or a sister who are making life choices that you don't agree with and it it breaks your heart and you want to honor God and do what's right but you want to love them and you're not sure what to do. And if any man, it says in James chapter one, lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord, it says, with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Listen to this. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. When you are faced with a fork in the road, when you don't know which way you should turn, if you don't know what the next leg of your journey will entail, if your paths are unsure, submit them, acknowledge the Lord in all things, and he will make them straight. You see, sometimes people will come to me with a very tricky kind of question. And they'll say, what should I do in this situation? And maybe it's a kind of a politician's answer, kind of like, you know, talking around it, like a PR report. But I always say this, I probably won't tell you what to do. If it's a black and white sin thing, sure, right? But life is complicated, isn't it? Relationships are complex. You factor in mental health, you factor in people's past behaviors, and sometimes if somebody comes and sits in my office and they ask me a question about what they should do, I'm thinking to myself, there is so much history here that would probably take far longer than I have time to to catch up on all of that. So rather than giving specifics to the, the the immensely complex situations that we can face, here's what I always come back to. If you are lacking wisdom, if you don't know what path to take, if you don't know how to respond or how to live well in this situation, here's what I always say. Starts with prayer. 
Have you actually and seriously prayed about it? Worrying about something and thinking about it all the time is not praying. Have you prayed about it? Secondly, I would say, have you searched Scripture for wisdom and biblical principles that can help? Have you actually searched Scripture? Thirdly, I would say this. Do you have brothers and sisters in Christ, friends of yours, who will walk with you through this journey? Who know you? Because you may come to me and say, hey, I have this decision. I'm thinking about quitting on this. And I may say, oh, okay, it sounds good. Not recognizing that you have a bad history of quitting anytime something gets hard. I'll never know that. But your brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are in your small groups, those that you have walked with over a season, they will know you. And if they're good enough friends, they will be there to speak the truth to you. So life is complicated. Life is, is complex. And easy answers don't help, but here's what does help. Pray about it. Search scripture. Open yourself to God's people, to his community, so that you can navigate through these situations in real time because complex situations never stay the same. They always evolve. They always change. So courage requires prayer. Secondly, I'll say this. Courage requires standing firm. You see this where Elijah has had enough. He calls the people for a decision, to make a decision. And at some point in his journey, it became clear that now was the time to stand. From Moses to Joshua to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the disciples in the New Testament, God's people are called to stand firm. But I want you to hear me on this point. Because here's how we, here's how we often get this wrong. As soon as I talk about standing firm, some of you will instantly make the leap to standing up and against. So you get into the politics, you get into advocacy and writing letters and petitions and, and protesting, and I'm not discounting any of that, okay? We live in a democracy. We should be good stewards of it. We should do our, our civic duty, sure. But when we get to the New Testament, what you notice when you study this concept of standing firm, that it's not so much about what you're standing against as it is what you're standing in. And that changes things. Listen to these verses. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Be watchful, it says. Stand firm in the faith. Philippians 1, 27. Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come to see you or else I am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together side by side for the faith of the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 2.15. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. Philippians 4.1, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. You can't stand against. We can't even have that conversation unless you're standing firm in the faith, in Christ. But we want to be, we're people of action. 
Our modern society has taught us that we want things to be done quickly. But it's less about what we're standing against than that internal commitment of unwavering allegiance to Jesus as king. That it doesn't matter what's happening out there. In here, I will submit to Christ as king and he will use my hands, my feet, my voice, my mind to effect change however he sees fit. But it starts with standing firm. We are like a tree that is called to set our roots down deep so that when the wind blows and the storm comes, we can stand firm. Not simply against the wind, but in and through our roots. So stand firm by standing in the faith, that inner complete commitment Now, some of you are familiar with this passage, and you're wondering if I was going to read verse 40. Oh, you know it. Is there any doubt? Okay, here we go. Here's how the passage ends. God has answered by fire. The people's hearts turned back, and Elijah said this. Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon, and he slaughtered them there. For some of us, as modern readers, to read something like that bothers us. And people excuse it all kinds of ways. Some people will say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. And God kind of chilled out as he got older, right? And in the New Testament, he's a little bit more subdued. No. That's not the case at all. God is the one who brings judgment here. And he does it through the hand of Elijah. But it is God who has set this penalty up for those who would lead his people astray in false worship. Why was this such a big deal? Why was monotheism or worship of God so important to God himself in the Old Testament? Well, we'll cover this in detail at some point in the future. But very simply, this line promised from Abraham on was the line through which the Messiah was going to come. The one who would be the savior of all mankind. So God is going to jealously protect his people, the line from which that Messiah would come someday so that that Messiah could come and he could die on the cross and rescue people from every tribe, every tongue, and every language to his glory. He was doing something here. God takes sin seriously. And if you ever think that somehow in the New Testament God chilled out and doesn't care about sin, you have missed the central plot of the New Testament. Because the fire of judgment that comes, that consumes the offering, the judgment that ensues with these prophets is the exact same judgment that fell upon Christ himself. And he is the one, Jesus our Savior, who absorbed the full wrath of God for your sin, for my sin. He's the one who took that punishment upon himself. And that is why we do not use the sword to conquer. But we work alongside of the Spirit. We live in a different era. We live after the cross. God has not changed. 
But the judgment that was due for sin was placed on Christ. This is why people like you and me can be welcomed. You know, it's a fascinating account. Really dramatic, a big showdown, 450 to 1. And the revival breaks out. And we think, God, why don't you do stuff like that in our world? Right? Wouldn't it be really nice if you could be like, have you guys seen my pastor? Right? You see that, like, he's fighting these false prophets. He just killed 450 of them. Crazy. And we discount what God can do in our world today. And we sit there, and maybe not verbally, but internally we say, God, where's the fire? Where's the fire that's going to bring revival? Church, the fire has already fallen. It's come. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He has been resurrected. And he says to his disciples, he says this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then a few verses later in chapter 2, that spirit comes. The Spirit of God comes, and he comes as tongues of fire. And the whole purpose of the Holy Spirit, one of his main jobs is to equip you for service. To empower you, to strengthen you, to use you. So don't sit there and say, oh, there's no power anymore. You know, things are just going to get worse and worse and, and be all doom and gloom and given over to despair. Are you kidding me? The fire's come down. You have the Spirit of God. There is nothing stopping us. We need to pray, church. We need to stand firm in the faith, in Christ. But the fire's already fallen. We have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. If you have trusted in Christ for salvation, the Spirit of God indwells you. You may lack the courage, but the Spirit does not. You may be given to fear and worry, but the Spirit is not. So church, take heart. Have courage. Don't say, where is the fire? You have everything that you need for life and godliness, as First Peter puts it. The fire has come. So pray. So stand firm. Persevere. Keep going. Take heart. Have courage. And trust that God will use you to bring about heart change and transformation. Let me pray to that end. Father, we love you and we praise you. I thank you for this opportunity to open your word and look at this fascinating account. And God, there are people here who are in incredibly complex situations. And they don't know what is the right thing to do. I pray that they will persevere in prayer. That they will sink their teeth deep into scripture to wrestle, to seek wisdom. Spirit, that you would speak to them through your word. And Father, I pray that you will surround them with brothers and sisters who will love them enough to speak the truth 
of the gospel to their hearts. Father, there are many of us here who we see this world and sometimes we wonder. And there are moments where we're given to hopelessness or even some form of despair. But God, we can have courage. We can stand firm because the spirit of God indwells us. The fire has fallen. Help us to walk with courage then, to persevere in prayer, to stand firm that all of this would be done for your glory and your honor. Amen. And that does it for this episode of the Berean Podcast. All of our ministries at Berean are geared towards the mission of seeing lives transformed by the power of the gospel. If you would like to be connected with our church family or give to the mission of Berean, just jump online to our website at bereanmn.com. Thanks for listening today, and we pray that you are encouraged by today's episode. Be sure to like us on social media, and we'll see you here next time on the Berean Podcast.